Welcome to our podcast, Doing It Right. This podcast reveals authentic stories from successful leaders doing it right. It's about their journey to become a leader, their choices, motivations, and lessons. In essence, how they built successful personal brands. Your host is Valerie Sokolowski, author of eight leadership books and nationally known as an authority on executive presence and personal branding. Let's get started. Here's Valerie. You know, Asian art to me is just fascinating. Amy Hoffland is with me today, and she has really set a record for inspiring and promoting learning about Asian art. Through her role as executive director of the Crow Collection of Asian Art in Dallas, Texas. It was founded in 1998, and Amy's footprint is all <laughs> over it <laughs> because she recruits many leading Asian art scholars. She launched the Crow Collection as the first wellness museum, which she'll tell you about, in the U.S., to molding an award-winning educational program, many of them, all of this that draws over 100,000 people to the museum every year. So, Amy, I'd like to welcome you. I'm so honored. Oh, Valerie, thank you. It's a delight <laughs> to be with you. I, You know, I made a trip to uh, Shanghai a few years ago, and I'm so glad that the concierge at the hotel said, if you want to learn about China and you're going to different cities, I think you ought to go to the museum. And I was so glad that he said that because it opened my eyes. I, I can't wait for you to tell us how you became the executive director and, and what it's like. It is the most wonderful journey that I've been on for now 21 years this week. And meeting Trammell S. Crow in 1998 was the moment where I saw my future open up. So it's been really incredible. Now, who's Trammell S. Crow? Thank you for asking. He is the founder of the museum. His parents were the collectors, and we had an interview that almost didn't happen in 1998. I didn't think I was the candidate for the job, and my dad said, well, the Crow family is a pretty important family. You should just go and practice interviewing. <laughs> so, and they're an important family in, in commercial in real Dallas, estate Texas. here in Dallas. Right? And so I found myself unexpectedly in an interview with their son, Trammell S. And I was recently a, a graduate of UNT, University of North Texas, in museum education. I was teaching up in, on the campus in Denton. So um, I was curious, I met Trammell, and he started talking about the importance of cultural education and how this collection of Asian art from Japan, China, India, and Southeast Asia would really help us connect with the immense migration of Asian Americans moving to North Texas. Sure. And he liked my experience in technology and community building, and so I found myself under the desk in Denton the next morning on a call with him accepting the job. And so I walked down the hall, and fortunately the dean was very understanding and very excited. So tell us a little bit more about the Crows and they, their collection that started all this. Yes, it is a heart connection in this mm -hmm. story. The Crows, first of all, Trammell loved China. He researched the philosophers of China. He was self-taught, an incredibly literate man who really uh, used the Analects of Confucius 
in his principles of business. He did. So he believed that a knowledge of jade is a knowledge of people and, and used an Asian art quite a bit in his own methodology as a leader of the company, which was Trammell Crow Company. And so in the 60s and 70s, they were traveling multiple times to Asia, building projects in Shanghai and Tokyo and acquiring quite a bit of Asian art along the way. So our museum is the very best of that collection. And it's one of it's it's one of the uh, largest, isn't it? In the it is one of the largest collections of Qing Dynasty jades. Mm. So we have a really great example of jades from uh, 1644 to 1811, which is just beautiful. What have you learned the most about being an executive director there? I have learned that museums, I think, are are great places to see art, but it's really about the people. It's about the Asian community that I've met, the friendships I've made. Um, some of my friends um, through the Asian community go back 21 years. And it's really about the interpersonal connections that happen in the museum and beyond. So he was right. The collection really has been a catalyst mm -hmm. for forging um, great community in this city. And Amy, you <laughs> had an opportunity to meet someone very special which we're going to shoot out here for everyone to see. <laughs> oh my goodness, the yes, Dalai this Lama. this was one of the best days ever. Okay, tell <laughs> so, us, tell us, tell us. In July of 2015, mm -hmm. uh, we were invited to bring a few works of art to the Bush Library and Presidential Center to welcome His Holiness as Dalai Lama. And a year earlier, I'd made a wish to the universe that I would get to meet him in some way and found myself um, in this tremendous opportunity. And so that day, um, I was able to meet him personally. This is a great photograph with the, the President Bush and Mrs. Bush and the Dalai Lama. And I watched him. I journeyed on to a conference in Irvine, California on compassion. And so I saw him in a, 11 different contexts over seven days. Oh, my goodness. And it was such a life lesson for me because what he did every time he would go to the edge of the stage following the talk and he would ask all of those in the audience to stand and and pledge to put compassion into action and I found myself doing that 11 times and I got back to Dallas and sort of had this moment of oh my gosh what does that mean what have I said and how do I have integrity with my promises and so we started a really important study of compassion as an art museum, and it's been so rewarding. Tell us more. Yes, I'd love to. So we kind of rolled out with um, a book study of Karen Armstrong, who is a wonderful leader in compassion. She studied the world's religious leaders and interfaith um, contexts and really declares that compassion is the most important element in human society mm. and that building that muscle for compassion is what we really need. And so we, we branded the museum as a compassion museum the next uh, spring. Great idea. <laughs> Great idea, but I learned very quickly that you really have to start first with self and with the team. And so here we were offering programs in compassion and lectures, and I noticed as a staff and even as a leader, I was out of integrity with, um, I mean, we noticed we had habits of gossip on the team, <laughs> <laughs> habits of um, 
you know, in some ways, showing up for each other is compassion. We weren't showing up for each other. There was kind of chatter at the water, you know, water, water machine, cooler. water cooler. Yes. <laughs> and so how are we really day to day with each other? Do we, are we in a competitive mind? Or are we in a compassionate mind? And so we pushed pause and spent a year working on the team. How did you do, how did you work on the team? Because this is fascinating. All <laughs> leaders ought to be listening to this. You know, we brought in experts. I was at the time working with a, an amazing, and I'm still working with our executive coach, Nancy Dorier from Dorier Underwood, and they are a company that believes in compassionate cultures and offices. Mm-hmm. And so we studied the work of Karen Armstrong together. A book talk is really a great way to build a team because you get a background of relatedness through reading that you might not in other contexts. So we read books together. We volunteered together. We um, did a lot of listening Deep, I've heard you talk about listening. Yes, a lot. Deep listening is one of the first practices of compassion. Mm-hmm. And we did a lot of that and learned that people, human beings, are suffering. Human beings in the world want to be heard. Mm-hmm. There, I think a lot of that um, want is really where conflict happens. Because um, generally, if you're not li- listening, you're trying to think of the next thing to say. I think I heard you say that too, and it's true. And so if we really get silent, that was one of our practices as a team, Mm -hmm. was to create moments of mindfulness and a little bit of meditation. Silence is something that is a rare commodity in our world. And Thich Nhat Hanh says that families in the United States are suffering from a lack of silence, awareness, understanding, and togetherness. And so we created all that for the staff and it really changed the culture and allowed our museum to flourish in a way that I didn't think was possible. That is absolutely fascinating to me because there's uh, been a movement for a long time called servant leadership. Yes. And <laughs> then there's these assessments. Now there's a big one that everyone is using in companies, emotional intelligence, awareness. But I've not heard any leader talk about focusing really tightly on the word compassion. Uh how do you keep that going? Like when you hire someone new, how do you bring someone new in and say, and you too must demonstrate compassion? You know, there are two things that make compassion possible, I think. Um, one is mindfulness, finding, finding silence, finding, finding that inner voice and that practice of quiet has really strengthened my own leadership. Mm-hmm. When you say finding that mindfulness for a few moments, are you saying in the, mom- in, the, in the midst of a busy day, just kind of being aware and stopping and forcing it or what? Yes, and it really is. Um, and I start every meeting with a moment of silence. Mm-hmm. And I just started looking at courage, which is the second most important thing, which is a gateway to compassion. Mm-hmm. Courage is the thing that stops us, a fear Fear is really the thing that stops us from being compassionate. Mm-hmm. And what, it, what did it take for the Dalai Lama to go to the edge of the stage over and over again? And to get to those stages takes courage. And so following the year of compassion, we studied practice, which is really how do I show up for myself in meditation, 
and yoga and other contemplative practices. Mm -hmm. And then following practice, we studied courage because there were things that I wanted to do that weren't happening. You know, I wanted, we started a podcast program. I wanted to write books. I wanted to see more quick evidence of courage and compassion in our organization. And it wasn't happening because of fear. And so we spent a year studying fearlessness and how it really is a gateway to compassion. And I think using the word compassion is an example. And business leaders were telling me, don't do it. Don't talk about meditation. In fact, I hesitated a moment ago thinking, should I say the word meditation? And I think part of our work is to not listen to the doubters and really believe at the core that this is where our organizations need to head. Um, I went to a conference in France on corporate wellness. And I thought, I'm going to go. This is the birthplace of really where Thich Nhat Hanh began um, teaching mindfulness in the West, a wonderful Vietnamese Buddhist. And um, I thought, I'm going to go and get all the answers and come back to Dallas, and the Crow Museum will stand tall as a leader in corporate wellness. And guess what? I realized corporations are just made up of human beings. (laughs) That's true. At all levels. Right. And we are flawed and we are... Um, suffering in some way or another. And so how can how can the crow be part of that conversation? And I came back to Dallas and just started getting more courageous in my own speaking, using the word compassion, being unafraid to stand in a place that is sometimes lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wonder what the executives think downtown when I start a board meeting uh, with three minutes of silence, but I'm going to keep on doing it. Good for you. (laughs) You know, good for you. That's really a lesson learned. And I've had to learn that too, Amy, through my career. I've had to say, no, I am going to do this when I just knew in my heart of hearts. And that's what you're saying. When you own it, when you know that you've got a direction, don't tell me you can't. You're going to do it right, don't you think? That's right, exactly. <laughs> I'm curious, Amy, when uh, when you were a little girl, did you know you wanted to do something like this? What were your thoughts as a little girl? You know, I didn't. I um, was headed, I wanted to be a doctor. I was born with cleft lip and cleft palate and spent a lot of time and through those years in hospitals. And I thought doct- doctors were my heroes. So I wanted to be a doctor, but then I didn't quite have the grades in my freshman year at the University of Texas to go in that direction. And so I decided on art therapy. And when I graduated from UT, I went straight up to D.C. to interview for the program at George Washington University. While I was in D.C., Armstrong Elementary here in Dallas called and offered me a teaching position at an elementary school. And my father, who would be, at the time, very happy for me to work and not go off... (laughs) to graduate school, called my friend's house up in D.C. and said, Amy, come on back. We've got a job. There's a job here. You need to take it. So I didn't leave into art therapy in 1994. But in so many ways, I feel like my work is full circle in this space of how does looking at art, um, how does creating compassionate spaces and opportunities create um, healing in societies? And so that's where my work is stayed and stayed true to what I care about in the world. So A journey that led you exactly where you were supposed yes. to go. I hope you don't mind, but you mentioned you had a cleft palate. You would never know. That's the best compliment. <laughs> I, I, Thank you. Well, it's true. So 
Is there something behind that that you could share of course, with the audience? You no, know, I think there's a lot to our journey. All of us have a story. And my story is that in 21 years, I had 21 operations. Oh, my on, goodness. On a cleft palate, a cleft lip, and then on the ears, the eustachian tubes, which are all part of the, the system that's right there at the back of the palate. And um, starting at what age? At eight eight weeks. So as soon as the doctors could do surgery, they were repairing the lip. And I Mm. have two amazing parents who fought for me, found the best doctors in the city. And I stayed with my plastic surgeon through the whole 21 years of, of surgery. And Dr. Donald Klein, in fact, the office was very close to this studio, And he saw me before we saw me. You know, he had a vision for how this uh, cosmetic and um, necessary repair over time would really create the face that I have today. And I'm so grateful. Beautiful. Yeah, it was not easy. (laughs) No. I think I learned, that's probably where I learned courage. You know, how to be stalwart in the face of of fear and breathe through tough moments and my mother was always bringing art into my world as a space of of healing art you know we were always doing art at home and I think the combination of all that created what what is here today this baby their baby would have everything for her healing and a lot of love in between the journey to put my lip and palette together to stick it together took 21 years. When I was two, we moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma from Dallas. Two and sometimes three times a year, we road tripped home to Dallas to visit the very best plastic surgeon my parents could find. Dr. Donald Klein was a gifted surgeon who saw me before we saw me. His was a method of smaller, corrective, reconstructive, and cosmetic surgeries each year, paired with two jaw surgeries, nine ear surgeries, and a number of palate surgeries. 21 operations in 21 years. Amy, would you uh, would you mind talking a little bit about uh, more about your story? Because uh, you were just talking about how you were, um, you know, courageous and you were doing things that you didn't uh, necessarily knew, know you were going to do. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, speech at Oral Fixation, which is a storytelling events for adults um, that you were able to tell your story? Is that right? Yes, I, I would love to. That was the first pass in the year of courage. So it was February of 2018. And I've been following Nicole Stewart and her beautiful project oral fixation. And what you do is you write a story and they select eight to 10 storytellers and you stand in the impressive Moody Theater in the, in the Arts District Moody Performance Hall and you tell your story. And I had no idea what wealth that would bring to me. Um, I was terrified. The theme of that um, evening was stick together. And when I read that, I thought cleft palate and those surgeries were all about kind of piecing my face back together. um, And that could be my story. Hmm. And I was, you know, I was most afraid to tell my parents because we really didn't talk about it for 20 years. Really? That's kind of what happened to me when I was little and we all moved on into our lives. 
And so I wrote several drafts. And what I didn't expect was Nicole's theater coaching, her coaching for um, writing and rewriting and editing, and then really being able to stand embodied in the story, which is hard to do, especially when it's emotional. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did it. And it was such like, after that, I feel like I could do anything. Um, So the second part of the year of courage was yoga certification. (laughs) So this 47 year old has spent eight months getting certified to teach yoga. Which was really, there was a lot I had to get over in myself for that. (laughs) You know, being the oldest in the room, um, a lot of things, the least limber. And it was the best year. It was such a great year just to do things that I didn't think I could do. Well, if you can do all those things, so can anyone. (laughs) That's that's amazing. And part of the story, you, uh, you shared with me that you like to write poetry. I do. I think the world of poetry and and creative writing are really important to leaders, especially leaders in the contemplative space. So um, I incorporate poems all the time into my talks and into my uh, speeches and into my meetings. I always have a poem, so I actually brought a couple here today. Okay, we want to hear them. So I'll read the first, which is Mary Oliver. And this okay. is, this is a, a poet that I admire greatly. And she has just passed away, but we'll bring her words into this time together. Great. This is Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? That's beautiful. I could just, I was right there watching that little (laughs) insect. And isn't that true? I mean, we have these moments of our life and we get to choose the action we're inside of. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I want to be inside of compassionate action. So, and then I brought a poem that I wrote. I want to hear that too. (laughs) And this is timely as it's fall here in Dallas. Mm -hmm. The edge of fall's paintbrush touched the tree with crimson and cadmium, a lick of light at the edge of the leaves, full of time and letting go, of birth and green and summer's growth, releasing boldly a last gasp of brilliance, the glow of carbon's breath, and allowing, giving a new space for April's bud, an opening, yet now a show, a wash of gold, a reminder that change is just the lovely glimpse of knowing. Mm. Amy, you're one incredible woman. (laughs) What's the best advice you have ever received? Take the interview. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And and you did, and thank you. (laughs) Take the interview. Always say yes. Always say yes. Always say yes. (laughs) 
you can always turn around and say, well, maybe not. But That's right. say yes, That's right. go through the doors. That's right. I always ask my guests, Amy, to uh, share as many other teachable points of view, meaning leaders ought to be teaching other people to be leaders, which is exactly what you're doing. What else would you say uh, to your two sons now as they're getting older <laughs> or to any of us in just living a good life and particularly taking it into the business world? With compassion, it is not impossible. I think it's so easy to feel overwhelmed. It is. And compassionate acts are as tiny as taking someone a cup of tea. And so it does, you don't have to change the world in a day. In fact, we're not going, we're not going to. But if I can show up as a human being who seeks places where I can create love hmm. in a place where it might not be there, then I think that's what we're here to do. And love is also a word that is feared in corporate culture, I think. And so I would say, you know, to be unafraid to use the word love, to say that compassion is the place we need to be as a corporation and as a business. I have to say all of this training over these years prepared our museum for an impossible future. And now we are part of the University of Texas at Dallas. We were acquired in January. And this Crow Museum of Asian Art that started out of a little love of, of Asia and of China is now part of the 14 system UT system My and will be preserved for the ages. I like to say until Gabriel blows his horn. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it took something to do that. It took something to redesign the culture of our organization that I believe University of Texas at Dallas found attractive. Mm -hmm. And like the Crow, they are an institution that has grown very quickly in areas of research and STEM education. And now we're bringing the A to STEM for STEAM. So this museum will be part of a major complex of arts and performance on the campus. We're, we're starting the process of working with architects right now. And in four years, the Crow Museum will have two locations, planting us right in the center of the Asian American community that taught me about love from the very beginning. Mm. So I really do think it's that compassion is, is the way we do it. And um, just to, to see that other human look them in the eyes and say, I'm here. You know, Amy, it's so needed. It's so needed when I'm in uh, corporations doing workshops on leadership and teaming and collaboration and branding, all the things. It's amazing how many people during the workshops will say something about, well, I shouldn't do that, or I can't do that, or I'm, the word fear is really what they're mm -hmm. saying. And particularly now, when there's so many mergers and acquisitions and a lot of people, let's face it, are being merged out. Uh, so people, I find, are sometimes fearful of having that voice and stepping over the boundary even an inch for fear of retribution. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to someone who is afraid of speaking up? Two things. One is to get quiet. So five or ten minutes a day in the morning, mm -hmm. set the insight timer or your own clock bell for ten minutes and just sit. There is a monkey mind on our shoulder that tells us we can't do things. 
You know, there's this voice in our head that says, you're not enough, you're not perfect, you're not. Um, and silence is the place where you can sit with that monkey mind um, and, and do that. And then I think the second thing I would say um, is to begin a meditation practice, you know, to, to listen to a loving kindness meditation practice, which teaches us how to be with what makes us uncomfortable. You know, we're a society that doesn't like to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I have a steering wheel that heats up when it's cold. And I laughed when I saw that because I thought there's not a moment that our society isn't going to let us be uncomfortable. And, <laughs> and I'm uncomfortable with that. <laughs> so um, I would say, you know, to be uncomfortable, and it might be uncomfortable to sit for 10 minutes for some people. So just try it on. <laughs> just try it on. I think that's great advice. What a wonderful opportunity to be with you today and hear about the different programs you're doing, and isn't there a city of compassion? There is. Karen Armstrong is the founder of a wonderful charter for compassion. I encourage people to go online and read it and potentially sign it. I hope you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, the charter has been signed across the world you know, hundreds of thousands of times. There's a network of over 400 cities that have declared that they are a city of compassion. We're working on making Dallas one of the cities of compassion. Fort Worth is uh, regionally. And it's basically a community that raises their hands and that we say together, we are for this society that is for each other. Mm-hmm. And so I'm proud to be on the Global Council for the International Charter for Compassion. And if they're interested, tell tell us it's, again where yes. to go. And it's compassionatedfw.org if you're here in Dallas, and then charterforcompassion.org okay. na- internationally. That's so, great. Thank you. I've so enjoyed today. And I hope you have. I know you've learned some things, as I have. And I want you to think about just in your everyday life when you get up and go to work, You can call it servant leadership. You can call it collaboration. Call it now compassion, because I think that's a really richer, deeper sense that we all can embrace. And God knows we need it. So until next time, you just keep doing it right, and we will see you in a week. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. To receive Valerie's voice, free monthly leadership tips, and to learn more about her leadership programs and coaching, visit her website, ValerieAndCompany.com. Next week, we'll be here again to inspire, engage, and equip you with teachable points of view from successful leaders who have been doing it right. Until then, lead authentically.